Hello everyone, it's January 12th, 2021. So NASA's doing what NASA does best, pioneering. It's called the Pioneers Program for smallish budget missions to further our understanding of the universe. There's exoplanets, neutron stars, neutrinos, you name it. And let's talk about it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 292 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All back together again. Yeah. Yeah. After a really, really horrible week for America. <laughs> and like, we don't need to yeah, get into it, yeah. but like, I got to at least say, hey, th- this was not great. I shouldn't say I'm not surprised, but I'm just like, yeah, you know, we're, yep. we're pretty used to it at this point. So, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, a step farther, you know, we just keep, yeah, step yeah. by step, we're, we're going to march in that direction. Fun, fun. All right. Anyway, yeah, in pre-news, space news, I guess we can talk about (laughs) Starship 9, which still is not launched, but I thought it would have over this past week. So we get to at least all talk about that together because Mm. it'll be some time from this point forward. Mm. So at least we'll all three be here to discuss it. So that's cool. I'm really glad that it didn't fly this week because I totally would have missed it if so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sure. So I, I went back to work this week and I, I was gonna uh, take the week of Christmas off and then three weeks after that. But I had, I had to like shift everything earlier by a week because this week we're doing uh, teleconferences uh, for instead of doing in-person end of year updates, we're doing we're doing them over a teleconference and like. So uh, I had to be there for that. And then like we're hitting the end of a special study that we're doing. And so we're just like having to slam out the last of the uh, of the coding that we have to do. And so I spent all week so busy and like just with my head in in a space that totally precluded fitting any space news in in my brain this week and then when when i wasn't uh working i was uh doing renovations and it's just like you know when when you have like brain tasks all day and then body tasks all afternoon and evening like you don't get time for anything else so i'm all that to say i'm really glad that SN9 didn't fly. Uh, but it's really cool that SN9 di- did have a new uh, body flap that it could borrow uh, from SN10. Just like you break it, you mm-hmm. replace it real quick because they got so many of them sitting <laughs> around. They have some that are down the line, so they're not going to be launched as soon. So why not just borrow from them? Yeah, yeah just borrow one from uh, from number 10. Now, do we know when they plan to fly SN9? But I mean, did, didn't it have a hiccup during a static fire? Oh. And by hiccup, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it had a bit of an issue where it did fire. But it basically, like, I don't know exactly what happened. I hope I'm not misremembering it because there's so many of these <laughs> serial numbers. But um, mm-hmm. I'm, this is this is also my, you know, this is my big break between the semesters. And so I've just been kind of actually zoning out of space news myself and just playing an inordinate amount of Dark Souls. Oh, okay. So Wednesday, they had a shorter than expected uh, static fire. And it looks like they were planning on redoing it Thursday, but I'm not. A hundred percent sure if they did. Looks like they had a static fire, and then they're gonna go for a second one soon okay. enough. Mm-hmm. So they're they're looking to do a static fire tomorrow, uh, Monday. Mm-hmm. So the day before the show comes out, the launch could be right after that. It looks like they actually have a test window, um, which is NET January twelfth, Tuesday January twelfth at midnight UTC. So so that's their NET. That that's pretty cool. Um, that's that's just looking at the um, the NOTAM from the FAA. That's pretty cool. So it runs from 1400 UTC to 2359 UTC uh, on January 12th. 
So yeah, we, we could have that happen before this episode airs, which is pretty cool. And this is going to be another, uh, high altitude test, you know, maybe, maybe 12, 13 kilometers. We'll, we'll see what happens. So in the news, NASA has selected four small missions to uh, conduct some astrophysics experiments, make some observations, I guess is what I should say. So this is like NASA just doing science purely for the sake of science, I suppose. So four missions, each uh, making observations or doing experiments of some sort that basically fill in gaps for certain things that we don't know yet. And we don't have any we don't have any ongoing missions or, yeah, we just don't have anything being done in that domain. So this is meant to fill in those gaps. Um, and that's sort of as I understand uh, what the role is here. So what's interesting is that the director of NASA's astrophysics division, Paul Hertz, he, uh, he says that the various mission classes are actually like logarithmically spaced in terms of cost. Mm hmm. You know, if you're if you're trying to do a broad scale of objectives, this is the way to to do your price points. All right, so uh, yeah, Pioneers is this brand new uh, program from NASA. It's I don't know if it's in the same line of thought. Like I, I'm assuming this is in the same line as like the other mission classes, right? And and David, you you were talking about how these are. The price points are logarithmically spaced, which is pretty cool for the exploration program classes. And, and Pioneers is brand new. Um, it's, in fact, everything that we're talking about in this segment is so new that it is as of yet very, very difficult to Google. If you look, uh, on Wikipedia, because like, um, what are the other, um, uh, mission classes? It's like, um, discovery is one of yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, frontiers frontier yeah exactly and so like I, I went to go look for the wikipedia page on this to to learn a little more and i wound up in the pioneer program uh you know like pioneer 10 pioneer 11 <laughs> which is totally different so um but uh the pioneers program began last year and the idea is to give early to mid-career researchers uh, opportunities to mostly do low Earth orbit and suborbital missions. Um, and it has a cost cap of $20 million. Now, right now, I don't know if they are planning on doing another round. Um, but the news item this week is they uh, selected for, I don't know how far along the selection process we are, but it sounds like you know, we're, we're entering maybe, uh, uh, phase B, but th these are some pretty cool missions. They're all low earth orbit. Uh, well, uh, one is not low earth orbit. It's, uh, it's at atmospheric, but like, you know, uh, kind of low earth orbit, small satellites, you know, a hundred, uh, $20 million. And, and some of these plans are, are pretty darn cool. And also what's fantastic is um, going through the different PIs um, and seeing their research histories. You know, all these folks have been studying the particular, the particular science that their mission is aiming at. They've been studying it their whole careers um, and they've done a, a lot of work. I think every single one, uh, I looked up three uh, and there are four and every single one of those three that I looked up, uh, had this rich history. And what's so cool is that pioneers is particularly early to mid career researchers. And yet the folks that floated to the top all have such, uh, uh academic strengths already. So pretty, uh, pretty cool to, to see this program yield what look like fantastic results already. So let's talk about the actual missions. 
Um, the first one on the list is called Aspera. This is a relatively easy to Google <laughs> name. The PI is Carlos Vargas from the University of Arizona. And uh, I think the only deputy PI that we're going to mention uh, right now is for Aspera. It's Erica Hamden, uh, who, uh, of course, we uh, mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we love Erica. So uh, Aspera is a small sat, and it's basically uh, an ultraviolet telescope. And what they're going to do is study circumgalactic media of other galaxies. What does WIM stand for, Dennis? Right. So it's, 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 yeah. So the circumgalactic medium just means kind of anything that's in between galaxies or, or actually it's, I think it's intergalactic medium as well. So there's a bit of a nomenclature thing happening. They here. are studying intergalactic media there, but they're all, from what I saw, they are, primarily hoping to study circumgalactic media. So I'm, I'm assuming that circumgalactic is around a galaxy and intergalactic is between galaxies, right? Exactly. It's, it's kind of like a continuum. If you get close enough to the galaxy itself, you start talking about it in terms of circumgalactic. But yeah, but so, so the WIM is the warm, hot intergalactic medium. And so mm. this is, I don't know if it's officially like, but it might really just be like the closest thing to a vacuum in our universe. That exists. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it is, right. it is remarkably low density and really, really, really difficult to find, uh, to study. And so that's something that this is also going to be able to hopefully pin down, um, because there's only kind of a few glimpses of it, uh, we've been able to detect over, you know, the last 10 years or so. And just the, the lack of matter that's there is what makes it difficult to study. Exactly. We're talking like a handful of protons in like a cubic meter of space. So Aspera, uh, is, like I said, it's a small sat. Um, it's not a cube sat. Uh, it's about the size of a mini fridge. And, um, all of these, uh, projects have, uh, a, a lot of different people contributing, but Aspera in particular, um, I was able to identify, um, I believe all of the, uh, universities that are participating, Columbia, University of Iowa, Ruhr University, uh, apologies, um, for my mispronunciation, which I'm sure, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, mispronouncing it in, uh, Bochum, Germany. And then, uh, of course, the, the primary organization is, uh, University of Arizona. And this is, this is really cool. Cause like you said, Dennis, this is really tough to study. It's cool that we can do it with something the size of a, of a mini fridge, you know? Okay. So the next mission is very frustrating to Google. It's called Pandora. Although in my mind, this is always going to be Pandora minus avatar because that's the only way I was able to Google anything on it. The PI is Elisa um, Quintana. Uh, she works at Goddard um, and Pandora is uh, another small sat and it's going to be using uh, visible and infrared imaging to uh, do transmission spectroscopy of exoplanets. So in this case, they're very interested in exoplanet atmospheres, uh, hence transmission spectroscopy. So they have a list of targets that uh, comprises 39 exoplanets around 20 stars. We don't tend to find single exoplanets in other systems, right? Um, and by limiting the number of stars that you're looking at, I mean, I, my guess is that if they were to pick these 20 stars, they would come up with 39 exoplanets either way, because that's the number of exoplanets that um, transit the star at the right distance. Um, they're going to get the best data from planets that are closer to their stars. And so 
right, we're, we're trying to study atmospheres here. And the problem is that when you're looking at the light coming from a star and watching it fluctuate as the planet transits the face of the star, a lot of the sunlight is going to be blocked by the planet and some of it's going to be absorbed by the atmosphere. So in theory, it seems really simple. You look at the color change and the brightness change of the star and you figure out what changed and that tells you what the atmosphere soaked up. The problem is that stars aren't super clean sources of light. Uh, stellar weather changes and so the output of the star changes. And so Pandora is trying to disentangle uh, the stellar contribution to this light curve and the planetary contribution to this light curve. And it's really cool the way they're going to do this. Like I said, they're collecting visible and IR light, and they're going to be doing so in a time variant fashion. So how do these, um, what do these telescopes see over time? And I mean, the, the high level idea is that they are looking at, at the brightness of the star. But by using these two different bands, uh, visible is really high contrast for uh, what's coming from the star, right? When you have a sunspot, what drops most drastically is visible light or, or visible light drops quite drastically. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and then the infrared uh, does a lot of different things, but in particular, they're targeting a specific band of the IR spectrum that, that water absorbs very well. So you get uh, your visible data telling you about the star and your infrared data, your limited infrared data telling you about atmospheres with water in them. And so obviously they're going to have a lot of math to do here, but this is kind of the the genius of this is by looking by by having two different cameras uh collecting data from the same star at the same time you can um pull out what they call a covering fraction um by looking at the time that passes the period of the of the star's rotation and you can kind of begin to isolate these different factors and here's what excites me about this uh maybe the most is not only are they are they collecting data on individual planets, right? These 39 exoplanets, but they're actually bettering our theory. Um, they're actually going to teach us more about how to make better observations in the future. And they are doing this with a mind uh, towards like leading into JWST data, uh, maybe not data collection, but at least data interpretation. Um, they're learning these lessons so that when James Webb finally gets up and running, uh, we'll be able to do more with the data that it collects. And it's, they're, they're going to be up and running before JWST. Uh, I, I believe, I mean, it, you know, this is all d dependent on so many schedule, uh, variables. <laughs> Um, but it sounds like they're at very least what I can say with certainty is that they will be working concurrently with JWST. So, you know, maybe, um, James Webb can observe a star and do so before Pandora gets to it. So we collect that data. Pandora goes back to the star 
and dials in our algorithm, as it were, and then we can better interpret the JWST data. Or maybe Pandora images a star at the same time as JWST. And so now we have James Webb's high resolution data, as well as Pandora's um, two band data. And we can use all those data sources to come up with, with really good solutions. So it, it seems like a, a fantastic um, proposal to me. And then the, the third one, and this is the last one that I'll cover is called Starburst. And I, and again, this one is ungoogleable, um, because a starburst <laughs> is already a, uh, astro- astronomical phenomenon. The principal investigator is Daniel Kochevsky. Um, he works at Marshall Space Flight Center. So what they're going to be doing is, um, looking at gamma rays and X rays. Um, and they're going to be trying to find neutron star mergers. They expect to find about 10 a year. So just a quick recap, neutron stars are the densest thing in our universe, uh, aside from black holes. And occasionally you get two neutron stars orbiting each other. And as they orbit, they end up losing uh, orbital velocity. Um, and we actually just had a, a long conversation about this. It, it sounds like the bulk of their orbital momentum orbiting around each other, that that energy is lost due to general relativistic effects. Um, and so basically you're spraying out uh, gravitational waves, which have an inherent energy. And so it can actually carry away energy from the system in a way that is not photons emitted due to um, due to heating of the bodies as they distort and is not due to um, the spin changes that each presumably experiences uh due to tidal effects and and like it's it's really cool that you can have this alternative method of energy dispersal and like it's nobel prize winning kind of stuff right just because i think there's a great analogy and i I, i'm pretty sure this is accurate as a non you know gr person but you know i mean when you when you accelerate a charged particle it emits electromagnetic radiation because that you know is the four because when we say charge, charge is the sort of charge for the electromagnetic force. The charge for the gravitational force is mass. So if you accelerate a mass, that mass mm. should emit gravitational radiation analogously. And that's where the whole, you know, the accelerations <laughs> are so extreme when you're talking mm. about two neutron stars, you know, close enough to <laughs> be whipping yeah. around each other at some fraction of the speed of light or whatever. And, and that's how yeah. come they become big gravitational wave emitters. That, that is, that is pretty cool. Um, and, and so, uh, right. They're spinning very fast. Uh, they're, you know, Einstein's ghost reaches in and starts stealing energy, um, (laughs) becoming stronger and, uh, his eyes glow more red or something like that. And then eventually they slam into each other. They, they do this merger. And so when, when they merge, they spit out a ton of energy, um, mostly in gamma waves. Um, but before they merge, they're spitting out energy, less energy, but they're spitting out energy in the form of gravitational waves. And so far, we have only ever observed one merger in gamma rays and gravitational waves at the same time. Um, We've only collected that data on a merger once. And so Starburst is trying to increase that. So like I said, they, they expect to observe about 10 
uh, neutron star mergers a year, and they're going to be working in conjunction with gravitational wave observatories uh, down here on Earth. Hopefully at some point, you know, they'll be able to work with LISA uh, doing gravitational wave observations in space. But this is like such a great opportunity, right? We it, It's only been recently that we've known that gravitational waves exist. It's only recently that we've been able, it's even even more recently that we've been able to actually observe them. Like it's all, it's also brand new. We've only collected this data once. So like all the groundwork is laid and, and now it's just up to us to actually do more of those observations and, and learn more about our universe. Yeah. And, and, and the theme I'm just realizing now between at least Pandora and Starburst is that they're leveraging multi-billion dollar assets that we already have. Yeah. Or sorry, that we have operating or we're going to soon yeah. have operating in the case of JWST. So, um, Dennis, when I was Googling uh, Starburst, um, I kept coming across the term Starburst Galaxy. Can you tell me what that is? Do you know what that is off the top of your head? Oh, sure. Actually, it's a galaxy-related thing. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my wheelhouse. Essentially, it's just really intense uh, star formation happening. And so um, oh. there's different ways you can get it. But like, in, in particular, you have a gas-rich galaxy, another gas-rich galaxy. If they collide, suddenly you've got a lot of gas now slamming into each other and forming new stars. Oh, so it is actually, it is pretty bursty then if it's resulting from a collision. Yeah, it's peaky. It's like orders of magnitude higher than like the kind of like, I don't know, low level uh, star formation that, you know, is happening in say, you know, the Milky Way or Andromeda, which is, you know, there's enough stars forming there to, you know, make them blue and you can see all this gas and dust kind of getting all roiled around and all that. But a starburst galaxy is kind of, you know, it's it's a spike essentially. So it's a fairly short-lived phenomena. I'm going to say, give myself a nice range to cover uh, the hmm. CYA, uh, let's say anywhere from, you know, tens to maybe hundreds of millions of years. Like it's, it's or like you talk about millions of years in the case of a starburst as opposed to talking about billions of years in the case of galaxies that are forming at kind of a lower level. So it's yeah, just a in, cutoff. It's it's a classification scheme. In human terms, it's you know it's a static kind of situation, but uh, in terms of uh, the universe as a whole, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's starburst. And then Dennis, you were going to cover this last one. Yeah, and so I, I just want to cover the last one just because I found uh, a, a white paper <laughs> for it, and so mm. I was able to kind of really dive deep in here. But um, it, it's it's interesting. So it's I, I assume you 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 say it. It's uh, PUEO, uh, P-U-E-O, which stands for the Payload for Ultra High Energy Observations. And as you highly right, Googleable name, highly Googleable name indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Appears in literature. It's got you know websites, heritage, all this good stuff. And so, um, yeah. So unlike the other uh, three, uh, you know, missions that have been selected as the as part of the Pioneers program, uh, Pueo is not uh, orbital. It is a uh, high altitude balloon uh, payload that you would launch uh, in Antarctica, and it comes from a long heritage of these uh, uh, these high altitude balloons uh, to look for you know, uh, high energy particles. Um, but it's actually going to try to find some uh, for the first uh, type of particle for, that hasn't been detected before. Uh, so once again, very specific science case, but for $20 million, I mean, that can tell you yeah. a lot about, you know, the universe. And, uh, oh, and one thing I wanted to just mention real quick is, um, so these, you know, four missions fall into two classes. But when I looked a little more carefully with uh, the link you provided, uh, Ben, with the Pioneers program, um, there was a third classification where you could have had a uh, uh, an ISS-based payload, which uh, I don't know how many mm -hmm. of those were actually proposed, but maybe, you know, if they were proposed, they didn't make it to this final four. Right. Uh, that was another possibility. You could have had something, you know, like a... 
like a, the alpha magnetic spectrometer that you just stick onto the ISS and be able to you know do a science case from there. So um, yeah, so Pueo uh, it, it has the the, the PI is uh, Abigail Vereg from uh, University of Chicago. And of course, you know, it's a big collaboration and, you know, and, and this one in particular is born from a, uh, uh, there's a previous experiment. So this is kind of building on uh, a series of uh, balloons uh, that have been launched in Antarctica for, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple of decades now at this point. The, the goal for uh, Pueo is to be the first to detect ultra high energy cosmic neutrinos. So we've detected neutrinos before. Um, there's these really interesting uh, experiments, if you're unfamiliar with them, uh, like Ice Cube, right, where you you, you string all these you essentially photodiodes through the Antarctic ice um, over a ridiculously large volume. And then neutrinos, you know, basically strike the ice, emit, you know, uh, I believe it's Trankov radiation in their case. Or no, I guess if it's a neutrino, it'd be a different type of uh, effect that I only learned about today called Ascarian, which is essentially like a Trankov radiation where your, your particle is going faster than the local speed of light. And so it makes an optical sonic boom, essentially. And then you kind of look mm. for that flash. And, and in this case, I mean, you know, there's one that, you know, Ice Cube does that in, in Antarctica. Uh, Antares is one that does that in the Mediterranean, which is pretty wild. I've never heard of that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. It, it, yeah, they just have these. I mean, I don't know how they... I mean, you know, I guess they can deal with, you know, crabs and fishes going and maybe nibbling at the plankton forming on the, <laughs> on the detectors, but uh, it works. And so, but uh, in, in the case of these balloons, essentially, you, you kind of look for that flash, but you look for it from above and it's, uh, it, it emits, you know, a, essentially a cone of radio emission that you're kind of going for. And so, um, right. Which gives us directionality, which is something that ice cube is famous for. Exactly. And so, um, and, and when I say, uh, ultra high energy cosmic neutrinos, so these are ones that are really, really, really high energy so far that, you know, the sun isn't really producing these. These are coming from beyond sort of a, uh, more distant than any other cosmic rays that we can really detect. Um, wow. it turns out that you can, there's kind of a horizon to how far we can detect cosmic rays because any cosmic rays further than that are going to go and get scattered by the, intergalactic medium and so but these neutrinos are notoriously non-interacting these ultra high energy ones cover these ridiculous distances beyond that horizon but they're very rare you know they're very rare and haven't been detected yet and so this mission if it got funded would you know hopefully be able to either detect it or place constraints on you know how rare these are but they should be able to detect it based on what they've uh, set themselves up for what makes them very distant is is the fact that you know we we're in a cloudy space, as it were, right? And they're the ones with their fog lights turned on, I guess, or their high beams turned on. And so we can see them through this very diffuse cloud that we live in. But does blue shifting make it harder? Because the farther away that they were generated, the more blue shifted they would be when they get here, right? Which means they would be higher energy? Or do I have that wrong? Well, well, so... They they don't have they're, they're particles so they don't really experience a Doppler uh, effect. There's no change like in oh. their wavelength. You know what I mean? That that's that's very oh, much okay. a yeah an electromagnetic phenomena. Yeah, and, and and being neutrinos, they're moving essentially at the speed of light. You know what I mean? Like uh, we yeah. we know they have mass, but it's and we only know they have mass indirectly from oscillations. <laughs> neutrino oscillations come from the sun, and so oh. we don't know how they're they're super close to the speed of light. But but they're they're a steady speed. They don't they don't change their speed. Yes. Yeah. Even as they're passing through space, which is expanding. Well, yeah. So so that. Yeah, so so the sort of gravitate that right that'd be you know your classic kind of gravitational redshift that affects the light coming from distant sources, 
but that's not going to mess with the... Maybe that would mess with the neutrino energy. They'd be a little lower energy than they would be otherwise. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> my, 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 yeah, my, uh, my relativity is, is, uh, very, uh, layman. <laughs> so like when you say that these are rare, do you mean rare? Like how rare? Do you mean rare in the sense that it's very hard to detect them or rare as in the sense that they're actually rare? You know what I mean? Because it's already yeah. hard to detect neutrinos in the first place. I have to, you know, dig up a figure, but it might like... It depends on how high you energy go, but there's going to be some energy that it's like you'd expect one neutrino, one event that you could detect per month, and then one that you would detect every six months, and one you would detect every year, and what because like it's just their power laws, and so they just kind of keep going and going and going. So, but yeah, that's that's I mean when you yeah when I say rare, you it can be to the point where you would really for like you know running ice cube for five years, you might only have you know ten expected events like exceedingly rare and so like that's something you can't you know it's tough to tell if you actually saw it or not because there's still going to be that noise in that background that's messing with you the whole time so um as i mentioned right this is a successor to uh, already flown balloons in particular the uh, antarctic impulsive transient antenna series of missions or anita and um uh, these you know basically share a similar design where you have these uh, high altitude balloons um, with, you know, instrumentation on there, uh, solar panel to talk about that in a bit. But, um, ultimately, you know, you're looking for this radio emission coming from the ice. And, uh, that's what Anita did in particular. And one thing I thought was interesting I, I had read about Anita was that the radio frequency interference from satellites over time, just because, right, the number of satellites is creeping up and up and up all the time. And this is before, uh, Starlink, but the, uh, the RFI from satellites was able to degrade Anita's data to the point where, uh, the third of the five or so that have flown, uh, actually like had its sensitivity reduced and its lifetime shortened solely due to RFI. And so they weren't anticipating that. And so, uh, Anita's four and five, uh, you know, had, you know, they did efforts to kind of mitigate that. Yeah. So, so in this case, uh, you know, what does this, you know, instrumentation, everything look like? So you've got this, you know, gondola and you basically, put a ton of these uh, what are called quad ridgehorn antennas and so they kind of look like you know uh like a proper kind of like horn that's like you know gonna honk at you one of those kind of square horns um <laughs> that you might see like you know on the side of a building to kind of like yeah. whatnot. oh and so, I, i'm just imagining like being startled and be like oh i thought it was gonna honk at me but yeah like like uh, like a tornado siren kind of thing yeah, uh, yeah. megaphone yeah exactly yeah you know what i'm talking about yeah and so uh just imagine i mean there's there's 108 of these uh that make up the main cha- uh instrument and so uh they're dual channels so it's able to kind of look at 216 different channels in all and um they're kind of arranged around the gondola kind of facing in different directions some of them are tilted down like 40 degrees to uh towards nadir um i don't I mean, none of them I don't think are tilted up because that's not, you know, you're looking at the ice below you, essentially you're looking at radio uh, coming from there. And so that's what it is. It's, it's a gondola with these antennas and then solar panels all around it. And that's essentially kind of what you're looking at there. Uh, so, right, you've got 108 of them and then you've got uh, four. I thought this was neat, too. Um, what are called drop down antennas, uh, which are uh, a lower frequency channel. And essentially they're just suspended from the bottom and they kind of look like uh, little bow ties. Uh, 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 four sets of you know bow ties uh, hanging down there, and so um, the the and structure that's just itself. Anita. Oh no, sorry, that's for uh, um, Pueo. 
Oh, I don't I think Anita had the drop-down antennas. This was something to add on because it would help their science case a little better having this mm. low-frequency channel for reasons that aren't exactly clear to me as somebody who, you know, is not terribly familiar with this type of instrumentation. Although I did have friends that got to go to Antarctica, um, but they didn't fly neutrino detectors. They flew uh, telescopes, and I was always very jealous mm. of them for doing that. And so uh, <laughs> the gondola itself has, um, uh, is, is basically carbon fiber, uh, uh, you know, tubes with aluminum ends, titanium pins holding, you know, things together that you can actually assemble on site, it sounds like, uh, to some extent. And then um, the last thing I want to mention that I thought was pretty interesting is that the solar panels are arranged uh, vertically relative to, you know, hmm. the ground. And the reason being is that they're going to pick up not just the, the sunlight directly coming from space, but also a lot of reflected light, because after all, this thing's going to be flying around Antarctica. There's enough reflected light that, you know, having it at that angle there is basically the way yeah. to go when you're flying balloons yeah. uh, there. And so there's 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 a long heritage of flying these types of balloons. And so it's uh, it that's, I think, a, a big strength of this one, you know, uh, relative to the others is that it really is. It has, I think, more heritage, uh, uh, or at least it has very obvious heritage. I'm not sure exactly how much Starburst, Pandora and Aspera are kind of drawing on sort of uh, new new approaches, whole new technologies. But yeah. Well, all right. Well, that that's uh, that's pioneers. Did either of you see what the what the future timeline looks like for these guys? I wasn't able to find any info on it. Uh, it looks like the next thing on the list, at least, is uh, concept study reviews um, and then hopefully flight approval. All right, we're back to three short and sweet since we got three of us. So, Dennis, what is that first one? Well, first up, Dynetics submits details for its HLS bid. One of the three competitors bidding to develop a crewed lunar lander for the Artemis program, the team led by Dynetics has sent NASA a detailed proposal for their Option A spacecraft. As part of their assessment, the team, which also includes Sierra Nevada, Maxar, and Paragon Space Development, addressed concerns related to the vehicle's interaction with the lunar regolith, cabin airflow, and an air revitalization system. They had also tested their lander's RCS system in flight-like conditions. In mid-2020, just shy of $1 billion was awarded to Dynetics and the other two competitors, SpaceX and a team led by Blue Origin, with a down selection expected early this year. Still pulling for Dynetics. Same here. Uh, yeah, they're the best ones. Then next up, NASA extends two solar system missions. Uh, so NASA has extended the missions of two of its spacecraft, Juno and InSight. An independent review panel found both missions have produced exceptional science and recommended the extensions. Juno, in a highly eccentric orbit around Jupiter, has made important discoveries related to the planet's magnetic field and atmospheric dynamics and has been extended through September 2025. While InSight has struggled with its HP3 probe, which includes a mold that has difficulty burrowing below the Martian surface, its seismometer size, and other instruments have enhanced our understanding of both subsurface atmospheric and magnetic phenomena on the Red Planet. This mission has been extended two years. And finally, DARPA satellites have been damaged. So, this week, some of the 86-ish payloads on the upcoming Transporter 1 mission were being integrated at SpaceX's launch processing facility in Florida. This mission is driven by Spaceflight's Sherpa FX transfer vehicle, and will set a record for the most satellites launched on a single U.S. vehicle. Two DARPA Heritage Building satellites, uh, Blackjack CubeSats, Mandrake 1 and 2, will be on board the launch. 
They will demonstrate autonomous constellation management, optical satellite to satellite communications, among other technologies. Unfortunately, during a stacking operation, a payload separation mechanism was released by accident and both mandrakes were damaged. There is no official determination of their fate, but it can be assumed uh, that they'll be pulled from this mission. Mm. So this week in spaceflight history, let's move on to that. All right, so first off, we have three winners, the Greek, Law Loving, and Kyle Foster. Law Loving and Kyle Foster, they get full credit, they get bonus points. Yes, so there was a mention by Kyle Foster of the death of Clyde Tomba, uh, who had famously discovered Pluto. Now that was not intentional, that's not what I meant by, you know, like the clue, which I'll get to in a second. But um, that is kind of a neat little coincidence. So, you know, I'm fine with that. I guess I should have thought of that as well. But uh, that's kind of unrelated to this, really. So anyway, the clue was RIP or RIP. And that was not just me spelling it out, but actually doing a little bit of a pun, like I meant the actual word RIP and then rest in peace. And I'll get to why that is in a second. But I guess let's first get to the event. So that was on the 17th of January, 1997. And that was the loss of GPS 2R1. And maybe more specifically, or more, I guess, more importantly for this this week in spaceflight history, the loss of a Delta II rocket. So the yeah. last one of these I did was the Delta IV Heavy. So now I'm doing Delta II. I guess that's just a coincidence. But um, um yeah, going down the line there. Um, I guess I'll get to Delta III at some point. Uh, I think that only had like what one or two missions. Yeah, right. That was a little transition yeah. one, right? <laughs> the payload. I guess we can start with that. But again, I kind of want to talk more about you know the launch vehicle itself because that's always just much more interesting to me. Um, the payload was basically just a GPS satellite. It was a 2R1, or it was the 2R1 satellite. The 2R stands for the second generation, I believe, of the first real like functional GPS satellites. So this was actually a replacement satellite for one that was already in orbit. Um, of course, uh, this satellite did not make it, but, um, you know, not a big deal. Really, they were able to replace it in, you know, due course because uh, they have plenty of them out there. These GPS satellites are actually divided into blocks. So the block one was the very first of, you know, I guess like GPS satellites as we know them today. And then there was block two. And so this was one of those. Um, and it was sort of like one of the second wave of them. And there was about 12 of them or at least 12 that made it to orbit. Uh, this was not one of those, unfortunately. Mm. But yeah, so that's the payload. Pretty straightforward there. But let's talk about the anomaly, like what happened and why we lost this vehicle. So this was, again, a Delta II. It um, you know evolved from the Thor rocket. And in fact, it was launched from the same space launch complex as the Thor rocket, which was a launch pad 17. Essentially, you know, an upgraded Thor um, with a second stage and I guess just a lot of other things. One of those things is solid rocket motors. And that's kind of at the heart of what's going on here. So first off, one thing that was really cool that I found out in researching this um, that I didn't actually know about the Delta II or solid rocket motors in general is that they can actually fire up in stages. On this particular mission, there were nine solid rocket motors and just six of them were lit at liftoff and then the remaining three would light after the first six had burnt out. And I didn't know that they did that with solid rocket motors. I can't oh, even cool. think of an instance. I don't know if that's if there's any other launch vehicle where you would see that type of a staging event. I, I've definitely heard of, of Delta II doing this. But yeah, I mean, now that you say it, I guess I don't know any other any other vehicles that, that take advantage of this. But I mean, it, it's a great way to spread out that thrust over a period of time. I mean, it's kind of the only way you're going to do it. it you know, it, it feels very familiar and normal, I think, to a lot of Kerbal Space Program uh, early <laughs> career type uh, vehicles. But yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I think the Delta II 
not I'm sorry, not the Delta II, but the Delta rocket. So, you know, that particular family that they were the first to use solid rocket motors, period, on anything that went to orbit. Oh, prior really? to that, yeah. They weren't the current gem solid rocket motors, and there have been successive generations. Um, we're going to talk about the Gem 40s, which was actually the first, but there's been like 50-something, and right now it's up to 63 or 64. Um, and they have much improved uh, thrust capability, and they um, have a much longer burn time, actually. So they're much more impressive. But yeah, so these solid rocket motors, um, they're called Gem, and Gem stands for Graphite Epoxy Motor. <laughs> That's kind of important. The sequence of events, let's talk about that. So at T plus 6, just after liftoff, 6 seconds in, a crack began to develop along the top of the number two gem motor. There is uh, some video where you can see not so much the crack, although they say you can see it, but I can't find it. But you can see black smoke actually coming from this crack in the motor. And yes. it started off as about a 10 centimeter crack, and then it grew to 100 centimeters. But again, I can't see it. But yeah, you can see what looks like a giant crack, but is actually black smoke, which is venting from the motor. And then at T plus 12 seconds, the motor completely explodes and that causes an adjacent motor to go and then um, at that point the booster auto terminated that whole stage and it's actually not known exactly what triggered the abort I mean like obviously it's something to do with this but um, exactly what uh, had triggered it they don't know uh, but suffice to say it had to do with the giant exploding booster mm -hmm. so that auto termination happened at 490 meters above uh, the launch pad 17a uh, the second stage interestingly that actually continued upward to 750 meters before some range safety officer finally ma manually triggered the destruct yes. command they, yeah, that happened at t plus 21 seconds so um this was a really bad loss of vehicle because of exactly mm. you know how it all happened um it was high enough up that it could really scatter its debris but not you know like it hadn't gotten out over the ocean so it was pretty much directly above and that's mm. when this happened so it was kind of like a worst case scenario and i'm sure that we've all seen the videos of you know the chunks falling back to earth it's kind of one of the more famous Mm -hmm. rocket explosions. So there was over 2,000 chunks of this rocket that were just falling back to the ground. And that was spread across three launch complexes, so some of the neighboring pads. And about 250 tons fell within just 915 meters of the launch pad. And a lot of this is just, you know, the burning solid rocket propellant. Uh, this mission, and I don't know if this is done with any launches anymore at Cape Canaveral, but um, it was actually controlled from um, a nearby blockhouse, which I don't know. I couldn't find the exact distance, but it's some hundreds of meters from the launch pad. So it's pretty close. Um, now, like after this mission, they stopped doing launches from the blockhouse, but uh, this was the very last one. And uh, there were 70 vehicles in the parking lot because, you know, there was obviously staff inside the blockhouse and those vehicles were either severely damaged or destroyed and there's some really good photos of that the nearby space museum was also damaged and i don't know if it's the one because the only space museum i can think of is a bit you know quite a ways down the road and it's hard for me to believe that that was damaged as well because that would have been much worse than what i'm thinking so i think it's some sort of a space museum on the premises it would have to be um i just pulled up where uh space launch complex 17 is and it looks like maybe 1500 feet away is an air force space and missile museum okay it's basically on launch complex 26a so that could uh, be okay it. 
So uh, there's a very interesting interview with Brian Mostel, who at the time worked for ULA. I don't know exactly what his position was. Uh, he has since gone on to work for SpaceX and I think has also left the company. But basically, his job with SpaceX was to build launch pads at the Cape. So I imagine he did something similar to that in his position with United Launch Alliance. So if you want, I don't know if you want to pipe it through, Ben, but we can like kind of like all listen to it. After liftoff, as was customary, um, I would walk into the blockhouse to to stand with the uh, the console operators and uh, see what they were observing in terms of data and the count and watch the rocket fly on the on the monitors. One of the solid motor cases failed uh, and it, it caused an explosion at the base to, base of the rocket, which then caused the, the onboard self destruct system to go and Boy, did that rocket just go off like a giant fireworks display with uh, you know, fire and flame everywhere. I was standing next to my boss at the time. Uh, his name was Andy Haupt. And Andy was one of these guys that was always positive, always in control. What Andy said was, boys, this is bad. And he dove under his console and all the engineers on either side followed suit. And I just stood there dumbstruck for a number of seconds until the falling pieces of solid motor and other rocket debris started crashing down and exploding around us. When the rocket exploded, it was about 1,600 feet into, into flight. It was approximately a third of a mile up. And so there was no sound immediately when the light show happened on the monitor. Two seconds later, it, uh, it made that incredible blast wave that shook the blockhouse. You know, then, then we knew it was really close. Nothing happened inside the blockhouse other than dust coming in from the ceilings and you know, some bookcases falling over and things of that nature. This piece of debris that fell in the cable tray had the effect of catching the cables on fire, which started to burn back into the blockhouse. The amount of smoke that came in through the penetrations you know, got greater and greater. We had a very good chief launch conductor at the time, Rick Navarro, who was in constant communication with safety officials in the fire department uh, right when we got to critical mass and, and had to make a move was the almost the exact moment that the, the fire department banged on the door. We all had plastic bags over our heads with uh, breathing air pumping into them and were being escorted by the fire department off to the uh, northeast or to an awaiting bus. Those of us who had parked there saw that uh, there wasn't a whole lot left. Um, in my case, my, my truck was completely destroyed. The aluminum had just completely melted down into puddles on where the side of the wheels were. The inside of the, the, the truck was essentially gone. There was nothing left except the metal structure. And oddly enough, also the glass from the, the two side doors had melted and laid in on the inside of the truck and looked like glass waterfalls running down into the footwells. Holy crap. That the truck part of that story really clinches it, really gives you something to grab onto. That's a great find. So that gives you some idea of uh, just how close people were, which again is a practice I don't think that really happens anymore, um, and perhaps for that very reason. But uh, hmm. launches from blockhouses, I guess, are 
find if it's a small enough rocket, but uh, this is clearly, I think, a little bit too big for something like that, hmm. at least in my estimation. Because, uh, again, I don't know exactly where it was, but it's, I mean, there are launch pads at the Cape where the blockhouse is about 400 meters. So I'm guessing somewhere in that range, you know. Um, and that seems kind of too close to me. I mean, it, like, am I crazy in thinking that? Because I don't want to be that close to a rocket launch. <laughs> I mean, I kind of do, but I don't really, actually. <laughs> I don't want to be less than a kilometer from a rocket launch. Uh, so anyway, the conclusion was that the gem motor casing had been weakened during uh, hydrostatic pressure testing. So basically what they were doing was they were testing these things by pressurizing them to like 95% of their max tensile strength, which doesn't seem like a good idea to me because what can happen is you can actually like weaken individual parts of that structure. And so they think that that's what happened. And then mm. from that point forward, they would always do ultrasonic testing um, because that's how you can actually detect cracks that might have formed, um, which seems a lot safer to me. And even then, these casings, I do know, are, their failure point would be several times higher than uh, the actual internal pressure that they would experience during a launch. So if they're pressurizing them to 95% of the actual strength of the casing, then that's that's like more than twice what they would experience during a launch, which doesn't seem, I don't know, that, that doesn't seem necessary to me. Mm. Um, and it seems kind of dangerous. The graphite epoxy casing, yeah, that's what had failed, um, probably because there were individual fibers that, you know, had been weakened during testing. And then it just, you know, gave way. Since that time, they haven't had any failures of those boosters. Prior to that, they had just one, but it was not a failure of the motor itself. It was actually just the motor failing to detach. But that was still a successful mission. They managed to reach orbit. They just had to use a, the actual satellite to get it uh, to the correct orbit. So that actually reduced the mission lifetime, um, but still, they were able to make it. But uh, yeah, so that was the only failure of a gem um, but it was a pretty spectacular one and it just, you know, had to go off at the exact wrong time, you know, cause had it been on the pad, that would have been bad for the pad, but it wouldn't have spread that damage quite so far. And had it been later, it would have been much further out over the ocean, but, uh, mm -hmm. that's about the worst possible time for that to happen. Worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah so that sucks. So yeah, maybe next time I'll do Delta three. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, that is your, this week in space flight history for this week. So Ben, you have the clue for next week and, uh, that date range is the 19th through the 25th of January. And what is that amazing clue? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a clue. I don't know about this amazing clue you're talking about. Uh, next week in 1967, the clue is simulated launch, not so simulated conflagration. All right. Well, I'm not sure what that is myself, but if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Cool. Well, let's press on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, ben, what's the first event? All right. Launcher 1 is getting ready to do hopefully their first successful launch, right? Because they've already, they've already tried once, and I think the first time they had a failure right after dropping the rocket off. So this is uh, Elena... Or, uh, Alana 20. For some reason, it's always been an F sound in there. So this is uh, Alana 20, which is a... um. Uh, NASA's Venture Class Launch Services Program. So it's 14 CubeSats, uh, for NASA and, uh, educational, uh, like schools and Space Flight Now says laboratories as well. Um, I don't know which laboratories, uh, contributed payloads to this launch, but we wish them the best of luck. Uh, their launch window is, uh, relatively wide. That's kind of one of the cool things about launching from an aircraft is you can take off and loiter. Well, actually, I guess it's one of the downsides because a launch pad on the ground can loiter for a lot longer than an airplane can. 
Um, <laughs> so right now their launch window is on Wednesday the 13th from 1500 UTC to 1800 UTC. And of course they're flying out of Mojave and it makes me really wish that I wasn't on the opposite side of the country anymore. Cause it'd be really cool mm. to watch them, uh, take off with a rocket and land hopefully without a rocket. And then, uh, next up we have an electron on, uh, January 16th. And so this is, uh, one with another wonderful name. Uh, another one leaves the crust and, mm -hmm. uh, it's got a, uh, you know, inside, you know, it's going to be a single, uh, communications microsatellite. Uh, that'll be launched. Uh, it was procured by the OHB group. And, um, you know, it's going to launch from Launch Complex 1 uh, in New Zealand, you know, Rocket Labs Launch Complex 1. And uh, after an initial elliptical orbit, it'll, you know, uh, the kick stage will perform a series of burns with the uh, relatable Curie engine to essentially act as a space tug and deliver the payload to the, you know, precise orbit that it wants. And so, uh, uh, again, this is January 16th with a uh, window that starts at 0738 UTC and closes at 0745 UTC. So keep an eye out. And then finally, the last launch, at least, is the Falcon 9 Block 5 with Starlink 16. So uh, lost track. I don't know how many satellites are in orbit now, but <laughs> um, a lot. And that's launching on the 17th. So that's a Sunday. Sunday, January 17th at 2045 UTC from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, launch Complex 39A, and that's a pretty good time of day. So, you know, that's in the afternoon uh, in the States. So check that one out. And then we also have a uh, solar system event. Um, well, a solar system spacecraft event uh, on uh, January 17th as well. Uh, Parker Solar Probe will be reaching its seventh perihelion. And so just like its previous one, this will be approaching at 14.2 gigameters of the sun. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty cool thing when it does this and you know they always kind of get good uh results and everything after each perihelion so keep an eye out and uh really only uh you know weeks later will it be doing its fourth venus flyby as well so uh, i'll talk about that when we approach and then finally uh there is a spacewalk actually two spacewalks coming up so the spacewalk this week is going to be happening on january 19th that's a tuesday um, coverage will begin on nasa tv at 5 30 a.m Eastern time and the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7.05 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, of course, there is also, uh, the preview briefing, which, uh, I always say is maybe more fun than the spacewalk itself. Maybe. Um, <laughs> and they will be covering both, uh, spacewalk 69, which is happening next Tuesday and then spacewalk 70, which is happening, uh, the Monday after that on the, on the 25th, so close to the end of the month. This preview briefing is going to happen before this show comes out. So go ahead and head on over to NASA's YouTube page, uh, to see the recording of the live stream. Uh, it's, it's so cool. If you've never watched one, you got to go watch one. They, they have fantastic, uh, animations using their Doug animation, animation rendering. It's not about rendering. It's about building the animations. It's, it's very cool. Blue flashing things make me happy. And, uh, those are your upcoming space fight events. Yeah. We got some actual launches. That's cool. Last week we struggled to stick together anything. We had two, uh, cargo craft, uh, leaving the station. <laughs> yeah. No one. I mean, it's something. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, this week will be much better. So um, with that, I guess time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support 
for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. Cool. All right. So that's it for this week, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.